Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner and welcome to another outside broadcast. Again, we are at sea and this time we're in a very interesting situation, which I shall try and explain to you. I'm just going to put the uh, phone that I'm recording this on into my pocket so I can relax a little bit and then I can explain the scenario where we are. We are at the very top of the UK. We are at the gap between Scotland and the Orkney Islands, the small group of islands just off the northeastern tip of the UK there, off Scotland. And we are going through a narrow channel called the Pentland Firth. Now, there's quite a lot of Scottish names involved in the areas around me, so I apologize now en masse for any poor pronunciation that I have going into this, but um, lots of respect for the people of this beautiful land, but I'm very poor at uh, Scots pronunciation unless I'm led through it, and uh, all I have in front of me is a chart uh, on my phone and on the chart plotter in front of me, and uh, there's only a few bits and bobs written on there, so apologies now for if I make any mistakes, uh, gross geographical mistakes or naming of things or, or more subtle ones with pronunciation, but Penland Firth is where I'm at, and uh, I took a little picture earlier on, um, which I've got here to reference, which is the warning for mariners on the chart uh, in the area we're going through. It says, all vessels uh, intending to use the Pentland Firth should be aware of very strong tidal streams and sets within the area. Difficulties can be encountered when transiting, either with or against the tide. Masters should ensure that a close watch is kept at all times on their course and position, uh, on the course and position and speed of their vessels. Um, well, I'll leave it there. I think you get the idea. Uh, transiting through these uh, narrow races is always very difficult. Um, you're coming from open ocean and you're coming then into a, a narrow constricted waterway. So you're already going from one kind of navigation to another. And then you've got the added elements of <clears throat> very much unknown tidal stream racing towards or against you or whatever's the particular scenario that you're in. Now, as I'm coming into here now, we are literally right at the top of the tide on the other side of the channel. Uh, the tide's at the very top and on this side, we're just approaching the top. So I'm hoping that I'm gonna catch slack water here you know, theoretically I should, but I don't have very much local knowledge. <laughs> I have zero local knowledge. I have don't have very much information at all about what to expect. Now, how wide is this? The entrance to the channel is four miles wide. Let me just uh, double check that here on the chart. Yeah, just uh, uh, three 3.6 miles wide. So we're looking at pretty good uh, width there but I am on an 80-foot boat, which can move rather quickly. And just to give you an idea, I'm doing eight knots through the water, and I'm doing three knots over the ground. That's how much tide's against me right now. Now, there could be, I've got to say, I don't really trust my speed through the water indicator at the moment. I've just been working on making that more accurate in the last few days. So let's, let's err on the side of caution here and say there's four knots against me now. But I'm literally arriving just at the right moment where this should all be turning around and um, things should be going slack. And that really is where I want to be at. I don't really want to be in here either when it's going the same way that I'm going. Uh, and that's due to the fact that there's some very odd effects that happen with apparent wind angles and apparent wind strengths when you're 
being moved along in a body of water at high speeds. And also, it's extraordinarily difficult for the autopilot to work out what's going on when you're being buffeted around in a, uh, a, a body of water which is moving either against you or, or with you uh, at any great rate. Um, the, at the moment, the autopilot's doing the work, and I'm out here on deck, suited and booted, and uh, all my gear on, ready to take the helm and uh, make what changes I may need to do as we as we go through. So I'm trying to bear in mind that you know charts, electronic charts, paper charts, whatever they are, they are an aid to navigation. Even a paper chart is an aid to navigation. A Mark One eyeball is still the best way of doing things. Now I should add into this that it is now three minutes past midnight. <laughs> so Mark One eyeball, yes, but also. Uh, we are doing it on, on, the, on the lights uh, that are around us. So what have we got on the left-hand side here? On our left-hand side, we have uh, Duncan's B. I should have, my, should have brought my glasses out with me as well. I'm reading this thing. I should, don't really need to read names when I'm translating through like this. Duncan's B head. It has a lighthouse on there, which has got a characteristic flashing every 12 seconds. 22 mile range with a Raycon uh, and that's uh, giving um, letter T on the Raycon. So let's break that down a little bit. We've got a white flashing light with a period of 12 seconds and a range of 22 miles and a Raycon which is a radio transponder which or radar transponder rather which if I have my radar going and it's picking up the, um, the, the signal then I'll get the Morse letter T coming back down the radar from the land which uh, will give me a very clear indicator of uh, which thing I'm looking at. So I can look at my radar and know exactly what I'm looking at. I can look at my chart. I can look outside. I can add all these things together, all these aids to navigation, and hopefully I can be safe. So as I look out over the side of the boat here now, I can see the lighthouse. It says 12 seconds. Let's count it off. It's coming around. It's coming around. Okay, and there's a light, 1, 1,000, 2, 1,000, 3, 1,000, 4, 1,000, 5, 1,000, 6, 1,000, 7, 1,000, 8, 1,000, 9, 1,000, 10, 1,000, 11, 1,000, 12, 1,000, and boom, there he is. I'm counting a little bit fast there. But uh, within a second of my, my uh, counted guesses, we've got that light pretty much worked out. And then over on the other side of the channel, we have, uh, let me just zoom across on my chart here so I can get uh, a name for you. We have, where are you buddy, there you are. An island, Wester Shoals, Muckleskerry. Now I don't know the exact, Muckleskerry, I think that's the name of it. Yeah, Muckle, that's a, some great names, eh? At least I can pronounce that one. And it has a flashing 330S. So it says flashing parenthesis 3 30S, 23M, AIS. So let's break that down. A white flashing light with a period of 30 seconds and a range of 23 miles. So it's flashing. So it's flashing three. One, two, three, and then 30 seconds gap. And then we get the next group of three. So I'm just keeping an eye out for it over to one side. 30 seconds is quite a long time. I'm not going to count out 30 seconds for you. Doing 12 seconds is pretty good, but um, it's an interesting game to be played here. Oh, here it comes. One, one thousand, two, one thousand, three, one thousand, four. I'm not going to keep going. Don't worry. But there is an interesting game to know how accurate your counting is, even up to 10 seconds. Can you count out? People say one hippopotamus, two hippopotamus, or one Mississippi, two Mississippi. Whatever it is that you're saying, 
how accurately can you actually uh, count out the, uh, the, the distance between uh, flashes on light or the time between flashes on light because it can become important if you're in a complex situation. Is it flashing every three seconds, every five seconds, every seven seconds? Normally they try and keep them you know, apart if they've got similar characteristics, but once in a while you get ones which are quite similar and uh, it's important to know that you've, you're looking at the right light. So <clears throat> what other issues are we dealing with here? So as we're going into this tidal stream, the main thing that I'm aware of is the fact that I've had to put onto the chart plotter here a little note. Uh, one of them is um, it's showing me a compass or heading and the other one is the course over the ground and I'm keeping a very keen eye on what's the difference between my course over the ground and what's my compass heading or my just magnetic heading on the uh, as shown by the chart plotter here and I'm also keeping a keen eye on what's my speed over the ground versus my um, speed through the water and I say although I might be a little bit suspicious of my speed through the water indicator because I know it's being calibrated I I'm still very, very keen to know that I have course over the ground, speed over the ground, speed through the water and heading available as piece of information for me to make reference to because knowing those four pieces of information gives me lots and lots of information about the orientation of the boat, the uh, way that the boat's being affected by the tidal stream that's in here and, uh, and gives me an early warning if I'm going to start getting out of uh, control. So it's only uh, three and a half, four miles wide, this thing. Uh, but I am on a boat which is going through the water at five or six knots. And if for some reason I end up going across the tide or with the tide, suddenly I can be, you know, 20 minutes I'll be hitting the sides. And that's saying if I'm right in the middle. Now, as it is, I'm about one mile off the, uh, the western edge of this channel and two and a half miles off the eastern edge. And that's by design because the channel is a dog leg that goes through about three miles and then turns to the west and so the general course I've got going on here I'm uh, heading into the the thing now at uh, 320 and I'll wheel over to approximately let's just get that piece of information up on the screen here yeah we'll wheel over to about 290 and then when we finish with that then we're back to 320 so there's only a 20 or 30 degree change required and or 40 degree change of course required as we get into the channel but how will that 40 degree change will it put the tide from being on one bow onto the other bow will it's going to change the dynamic of how the boat's sitting so i'm trying to keep as much information uh in front of me as i can i say i'll come up on deck to be here with the autopilot as it goes through this situation so i'm just looking around and making sure i'm uh, eyeballing all the uh, potential uh vessels in here that's the other thing of course if there's you know does it get busy when it gets to this kind of slack water it is midnight um so i'm not too worried there's also not likely to be some like flotilla of yachts coming out and uh anything that is out here is gonna be big powerful uh oil supply vessels or, or gas well supply vessels which will just power through regardless of what's going on now the other thing that I'm aware of in here is that there are overfalls. I did experience some of that actually as I was entering just earlier on before I started this recording. And that's where the tidal stream is coming in and underwater it's going over really rough ground. And it's uh, just like you'd see on a river. Like if you have a shallow bony river and it's got all sorts of rocks, it can create lots of big eddies and whirlpools and massive uh, water features which can, for smaller vessels, be really quite, you know, 
large uh, obstacles. Now, obviously, we're on a, a bit bigger boat. We've got a lot more displacement than that. But the thing I found that was very weird was that I started to get um, uh, my instincts started to kind of scream out when I was down below that the motion of the boat wasn't right, that I was uh, the way that the boat was flicking backwards and forwards wasn't right. The way that it, the, the waves period was uh, uh, not steady, like the instinct which tells you you're getting close to the shore, the instinct that gets you tells you getting into shallow water or something that starts to call out to you. And I need to come on deck and see what's going on. The other thing which is happening is that because, as I said, you've got weird apparent wind effects. See, the wind is blowing from the southeast and essentially to break things down, we're going to the northwest. So the wind's almost dead behind me. And that's creating some uh, havoc with the uh, sailing because where I thought I had a nice steady angle going into this, I've now got the wind almost dead behind me. I just filmed a video today actually showing how long it takes to um, jibe a boat like this. Oh my goodness, got a yawn there, sorry. <laughs> it's not you, don't worry, it's me. But uh, it's just getting towards the end of the night. And uh, I've been awake quite a long time here. So <clears throat> um, the uh, apparent wind effect on the boat is that uh, we're, we were dead. No, we weren't dead downwind. We had the wind about 150 degrees on the port quarter coming into this area. And as we got into the stream now, there's some mountains around. That's one thing I looked at before I got in here too much because uh, that's another thing that can have a, a big issue uh, on you is the height of the mountains. And I thought, I haven't got it right here in front of me now, but I think the, the highest mountain that was nearby was 86 meters or something. It wasn't very high at all. I might have been lying about that, actually. Maybe that's... Uh, it, it wasn't crazy high. And that, that I thought, was uh, a good thing because... The, um, the concern would be that if the wind's coming from the southwest and I'm going to the northwest and I put a piece of land between me and my, you know, and the piece of water that I'm on, suddenly I might either be in a massive wind shadow in a tidal stream area or I might be getting catabatic winds coming down hitting me, which, um, uh, you know, equally difficult to deal with you get them accelerating up over the hillside and then rolling down towards you and uh, and big gusts of that i'm going in here now with my trusty j5 jib up which is a small smallish jib you know it'd be uh it'd be the biggest jib on other boats but here on a boat that weighs 25 tons it's not too massive and i've got two reefs in my mainsail the main is way 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 out uh, almost like up against the spreaders um, and the jib is nicely eased the wind angle now is about apparently it's about 160 degrees and uh we're doing okay but there was a moment back there about when i started this recording where the main was starting to really get into a pickle where i was almost sailing by the lee and i uh, had to put the preventer on to make sure that there was no way that it was gonna through its um through momentum like flick its way across or indeed through getting the wind behind it so uh, what can I tell you about the local area here to get away from the sailing too much? The thing that's uh, interesting here is that this top corner of, uh, of the world is uh, John O'Groats. This is the most northerly tip of the UK. And I'd like to do a shout out to my friend Karen Sarah Ball, who uh, I did 2,000 miles of cycling with in Australia many moons ago, who then went on and on the same bike did an absolutely epic ride from Land's End to John O'Groats, 
and uh, raised all sorts of money for charity and uh, did an absolutely fantastic uh, job of that. I know it was a few years ago now, Karen, but if you do ever listen to this, um, it's the first time I've ever been up to the cornerless world and I'm so lazy I came on a boat. Uh, so all credit to her and to anybody else that's done that kind of thing. Um, this is uh, a long way away from where I started down in Southampton and it's many hundreds of miles from Southampton on down to uh, the other tip of the UK uh, down in uh, Cornwall but we did go to the very southern tip of the UK when we first came in with the Marconi race uh, Marconi race rather Marconi event beg your pardon I'd love it, it was a race but the event that we do every year going across from Newfoundland to the UK and the most southerly tip down there is uh, is the the lizard which is a little lighthouse and peninsula sticking off the bottom of the UK the Land's End is the very furthest south western tip of the UK so it's the longest possible diametric distance to go from southwest to northeast Land's End to John O'Groats but in terms of going from the most southerly point to the most northerly point that's from um, the, uh, the Lizard Lighthouse and then up as I get here I think basically we can probably call it with this lighthouse that we're going past now I don't think there's any just looking at my chart here there are, oh there's another one that's a little bit further north okay so when we pass Dunnett Head Dunnett Head is the next lighthouse around and that is the most northerly lighthouse in the UK mainland so we'll have gone from the most southerly tip to the most easterly to the most northerly uh, in this trip around the UK I am thinking you know I, I I'm so dumb sometimes I I, I, I don't realise the opportunities that are in front of me sometimes I was sitting in Southampton for a couple of weeks with a crew member who needed to stay in the UK before she could fly back to Canada okay all well and good but then I had really another two weeks if not nearly three weeks where I could have just gently made my way around the UK and on up I could have called in and done the Wi-Fi thing and done some paperwork at the various marinas and estuaries and bays and docks and ports that I've driven past now but I could have had quite a good fun I think just mooching my way up the UK uh, and then not have the issue I've got now which is actually that the, the latest weather forecast I got caught in a wind hole last night for 12 hours it was expected which was good I knew that uh, it was coming I went into it knowing okay this is probably gonna be 12 hours but what was unfortunate is that on the other side of it like the weather forecast has changed so I've got a lot more upwind to do between here and Iceland than I was expecting and um, that's gonna slow me down so I'm actually gonna be 24 hours late in Iceland which has already been communicated to the crew that I'm meeting there but as we uh, as we look at the situation now ahead of me, it's, uh, it's very frustrating that suddenly, instead of having uh, been bang on time and have had the fun of driving all the way uh, up the UK and visiting all these places, I just sat in one spot, nice though it was, and now I look like I'm going to be late for where I'm meant to be. But I'm, I'm looking at the chart again here now, and I've got uh, exactly 700 miles to go, exactly 700 miles till I get into the port of Reykjavik. So still a lot of the adventure left to go. Um, I set off on the 7th and we by this morning now we're going into the uh, early hours of the 12th um, and I've had to come up the UK in uh, uh, you know <clears throat> basically it's 1400 miles so I'm basically halfway through my journey now and I've got uh, another four days to go to get there and it's four days since I set off. The first part of it was uh, um, very um, slow work going down Southampton waters and making my way out through the Solent and then across the bottom of the UK and then I was also I, overall I've been um, uh, delayed by about 24 hours with zero wind situations and this time instead of just 
<coughs> burning the diesel to go through them. I decided that uh, you just got to make a choice about that stuff. Like it's not that big a deal. I didn't really feel like burning. I would have burnt. Um, I would have burnt like 200 liters of diesel, nearly a quarter of a ton of diesel to to burn through all the light bits that I've got and maintain like a delivery um, delivery amount, delivery uh, speed, you know, uh, an average all the way through here. I just didn't think that that's uh, worth it. There's everybody that's going to be meeting me in Reykjavik is uh, more than happy to uh, be in, in such a beautiful place for an extra day. So why bother burning all that extra diesel? So. Um, I've got a I've got a situation now where I'm I'm passing into this channel and uh, in many ways passing out of the more tricky part of this journey. The initial departure from the UK, as I said in the previous uh, um, podcast, it's uh, and I've been going through this on the YouTube stuff quite a lot. So if I sound like I'm a little bit distracted, it's because there's uh, the land's only a mile away, and at the same time I'm looking at speed through the water, I'm looking at the wind, I'm looking at the course over the ground, the heading, and everything else. So if I sound a bit distracted, it's because I am, because I'm actually here on a boat at midnight going through a very tricky navigational bit. So imagine if you were stood on the deck next to me, there might be a few moments where I, I look away and do other things rather than just chatting. But um, yeah, as I, as I go through here now, the uh, feeling is very much that I'm getting out of the tricky navigational part and then I'm back into open water. Coming round the UK to the east is something I've, I've never done this journey, certainly never come this far up the country. And uh, I've had an opportunity to sit and look at the chart plotter and look at all the beautiful uh, um, ports and, and uh, places I could have stopped off, little hideaways, and really got a feeling for the fact that it would have been an excellent adventure to stop off. Uh, what I have had to deal with all the way up, though, has been a, a very tricky navigational situation because there's a lot of wind farms I've discovered <laughs> off the UK uh, since I was last doing a lot of sailing in the UK. I probably have gone past 10 wind farms of at least 40 uh, wind generators in each farm. Uh, it's, I'm not quite sure exactly what I think about that. I, you know, I'm, I'm really behind any kind of power which is not giving off gases into the atmosphere that's not polluting the environment i'm not unaware of the fact that the blades on those turbines are made from fiberglass and that is not exactly a clean process making those that the tubes themselves are probably made of i guess are they steel and the processes making steel and iron are not particularly clean there's a lot of plastic wiring in them and plastic components in them and you know it's it is all well and good and it is moving in the right direction but we are probably at the beginning of renewables, we are, we are as basic in our use of renewables as we were in our basic use of internal combustion engines 120 years ago. That's, that's how I'm looking at it. It probably is the correct direction to go, but we've still got a century's worth of development to go before we really make it work, where we can look at what we've created and say, this is a clean process and it doesn't have any pollution coming out of it. Yes, indeed, there is no pollution coming off the wind turbine, but the wind turbine itself and the process that made the wind turbine, there's definitely a lot of pollution coming out of those. And then I am glad that they're offshore and doing what they're doing. I was quite surprised at some of the depths that they were doing it in. They were in areas where they were 50 meters, like 150 foot deep, and they're busy putting in bases and putting in more uh, towers, uh, more, more uh, generators. 
but it's uh it's better i guess that they're at sea than they're at land but you do kind of as i have to like jibe around them and and really like destroy a nice course to to get around these things i i do kind of think hey who <laughs> who gave you permission to put that there you know <laughs> i know that's a bit narcissistic but it's like hmm i thought it was like free and open navigation but you know you're inside uk territorial waters so of course it's all i'm sure heavily licensed they're not just out here like uh What's that fly tipping they call it in the UK where you just dump rubbish somewhere inside of the roads? It's like fly wind generating or something. I'm not quite sure how you put that together, but wind generating on the fly is not quite what I mean. I mean like just dumping them without permission. But here we go looking at uh, the situation around me now. Yeah, we've, we've got a, uh, a, a whole other challenge on the other side. As I made a bit of a reference earlier, the situation as I was coming up towards Aberdeen was that I was going to probably be able to get through to the other side of this uh, this channel, the Pentland Firth where I am now, and get into a favourable wind system which would rotate me round to Reykjavik and I'd have, I think my initial estimates were 66% of the time I'd be reaching or downwind, <clears throat> which is good news when you're in a boat that's designed for reaching and going downwind. <sighs> Oh my goodness. <clears throat> this is not the right time to be falling asleep, Chris. <laughs> Slap myself around the face. Um, but with the delays that I've had and the specifically the delay last night, that weather system's passed through and now I'm on like the other side of it. And the other side of it means that I'm going to be basically 66% of my time upwind, which uh, I've got a couple of reservations about that. Coming out of, where was it now? I've got to go back down on my chart. It was, yeah, it was just off. Where's this? Coldridge Bay. Got to try and find a place that anybody knows the name to. South Shields. South Shields, I guess, is the, the thing. I can't God, I, I think I'm getting to the point where I like, do need glasses. Linmouth. Linmouth, is that right? North of, uh, of uh, South Shields, north of Newcastle. I've got a friend, Ben, who might listen to this one day. He's from South Shields. He'll be able to tell me which one's which. But um, I had to go offshore at that point, and uh, the grib that I was dealing with said that there was 20 knots. And I say my speed through the water transducer is not accurate now, which then means that you're... Uh, apparent winds, no, your apparent wind speed's okay, but your true wind speed's not accurate if your speed through the water sensor is not accurate. And my apparent was 27 knots of wind, but jeepers O'Malley, there was so much really crazy swell. Uh, I'm not sure it was the end of something else. 27 was what it was sitting at towards the end, now I think about it. So it was over 30. I think I saw gusts of like 33, 34 uh, in the middle of it. Not crazy amounts, but boy, oh boy, this um, boat, it's got a different characteristic to the boats that I'm used to driving. I'm used to driving 60 or 60 foot boats, 60 foot boats, the Open 60, the Volvo 60. It's all around 60 foot. And uh, the, one of the reasons that 60 foot was chosen for offshore boats is it's the average wavelength. And it means it's very good for the boats to get up onto the swell. But I've also started to realize it also allows the boat to kind of cut through swell a bit easier when it's going upwind. And when you get into an 80 foot boat, you're coming off one wave the 40 footer the front of the boat is levering through the air should bang down into the trough behind the uh wave and it's uh it's, it's quite the motion and uh you know i'm on my own at the moment doing this and i've got to get used to the boat i've got to get used to how things run on deck i've got to used to get used to what 
sail configurations are best in which situations and how she likes to go over waves and one of the other things I've got a load of stuff stored in the Lazarus that seemed to be banging around and just kind of there was almost a bit in the middle of it where it's like this is quite overwhelming actually it was uh, a moment where you have to sort of take mental note like hey there's an instance here where you could be threatening your mental health if you're not too careful uh, it's very rough conditions obviously it's dangerous on deck there was a bit where I was at the back here like basically just clinging onto the deck as we were going through some of these huge waves and then I thought you know I'm gonna have to tack out of this and what had happened the situation that had come about was that the wind was backing and I mentioned this before but it, the wind was backing and uh, I was then starting to drive up the waves and that was a very very strong action to be getting caught into um, and yeah, I'm, as I'm setting off now into the Atlantic, and I'm looking at the grib and it's saying, oh, there's 15, 20 knots upwind. You're like, huh, <laughs> okay, what exactly is that going to be like? I'm very used to being on Challenger, and I would trust her upwind in 25 knots any day of the week. When we go to the Caribbean, you're going upwind in 25 knots. It's really not an issue, but the North Sea is so shallow. You know, when I was doing that, it's only like 50 meters deep, and when the waves are four meters high, there's a lot of... You know, it seems to get kicked up worse because it's such a shallow piece of water. I guess that's all I can say. Plus, I was only maybe 10 or 15 miles off the coast. So there's quite a lot of contributing factors that gave it a real feeling that this is quite a serious situation here. So as I go out of the North Sea or certainly the eastern part of the North Sea and come through the Pentland Firth here and head out into the North Sea, the Western North Sea, I'm not sure exactly how to refer to that, the bit that's connected to the Atlantic, there's a feeling of like, okay, how is this boat going to be going upwind in 20 knots if that's what it is? And is the report accurate or is it going to be 20 knots or is it going to be 30 knots? And, you know, just, just questions. And I, I'm always open to saying that's how it is. Anybody who says they're not afraid is either a fool or, 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 or doesn't understand the situation it's 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 one or the other you've got to be afraid fear is the great provider it makes you think more sharply hold on more tightly move faster it gives you the strength that you need to to get through uh, mentally physically spiritually and uh, I'm, I'm happy to open myself up to being a bit fearful like okay I'm gonna about drive uh, solo between the Orkneys and uh, Iceland on my own in an 80 footer and it's gonna be mostly upwind and it's gonna be blowing 15 or 20 knots like if you're not a little bit fearful of that I think something's not quite right with you this is not to say you should be paralyzed by fear that's the important thing because the fear is there to sharpen your your, your senses it's there to give you more accurate idea of where you need to be looking, what details you need to be checking, what you need to be getting sorted out. It shouldn't in any way be taken as uh, something that should stop you from acting. But yeah, I am at the moment now of trepidation as I pass through the eye of the needle here of like, okay, we have to now go and do this, go and do this other thing. So we seem to be doing pretty good here. Um, let me have a see what we're doing with the um, chart. I've got the chart, I've got the chart plotter running, I've got a chart on my phone. So we're up to five knots. Uh, over the ground uh, still doing five or six through the water so I'd say we've hit this about right at slack tide although my chart tells me that <clears throat> there should still be quite a bit of flow in here it is starting to show that it's all kind of going off to the half knot one knot kind of region very very soon so what we're going to do is uh, whilst I'm chatting to you <laughs> just to keep things interesting we've done half an hour already I'm going to go and uh, put away the code zero. So on the foredeck of the boat, 
uh, is the code zero which was put there uh, this afternoon I've been doing a lot of filming whilst I've been out here and I've been trying to build up a, a library of, uh, of videos which can be you know interesting entertaining and instructional uh, and can uh, serve to um, I know, hopefully inspire people to go and get involved in their own things. So where am I now? I'm right in the very, very bow of the boat. As I look down below me, the water is sliding by. <clears throat> I'd say we're doing six or seven knots now. I'm leaning out over the uh, bow sprit. I've got the nav lights like basically between my legs here. Oh, and I'm going to make sure I don't crush the phone. I've got to be very cautious with having all this equipment in my pockets as I do these things. I'm a bit... I'm a bit rough with stuff and uh, I've got a phone in the pocket directly where I'm about to lean against the <laughs> I'm just I'm moving you basically the thing that's recording my voice now needs to come out of my pocket and go in a different pocket otherwise as I lean forward here to get into this job you're gonna get crushed all right so I'm just uh, I'm clipped on don't worry I'm leaning right out over the bow sprit and uh, just knocking the pin out on the code zero furler got to raggle it around a little bit there we go and that releases the code the bottom of the code zero sail from the furlough we'll come back in a little minute and uh, attach halyard onto that and then we're going to drag the code zero in onto the foredeck the rest of it's already bundled up on the foredeck just got to make sure i'm clipped on at all times here this uh situation with the wind being very far aft has not changed much although our boat speed's increased so the jib is uh, very keen to get involved in what I'm doing, i.e. <laughs> very keen to bat me around the head. It's gentle, but I don't want to be knocked over the side of the boat. I'm quite fastidious about uh, clipping onto the boat, and uh, I don't think anybody will begrudge me that. Okay, so the tack of the Code Zero is up on the foredeck now. Now I've got to untie the sail from... The deck where it was lashed down earlier on i don't mind the sails being on the foredeck just sort of rolled up this is a roller furling sail uh, laminate construction i don't mind it being on the foredeck in flat water i don't mind it being on the foredeck for a short period of time but we can't get to a point where we allow it to stay out on deck long term i've i've, I've done that i've been there and i've made that mistake and i always say i'm a very lazy person so I, don't, I try and avoid anything which is going to be uh, hard work for me in the future. And bagging this sail up to take it to the sailmakers and get them to do $1,000 worth of repair on it because it's been sliding around on our foredeck. Remember these, uh, these uh, two-pack epoxy paints with sand in them? That's a great way. <laughs> that's, that's sandpaper. <laughs> that's all that is. If the sail's sliding around on sandpaper, it's going to get sanded. Okay, I'm done doing the sail ties now, Ugh. which are holding the sail to the bases of the stanchions. There's a delicate balance to be made when you're tying sails off on stanchions on the side deck of a boat. Um, the, the ocean is way more powerful than you might be expecting. If you're not careful, if you do it incorrectly, it's very, very easy for the ocean to grab a hold of something that's attached to stanchions and just remove that thing plus your stanchions uh, without you even realizing what's going on uh, sails that are like big jibs flaked up on the foredeck 
and then attached with uh, sail ties are a very very popular thing for the ocean to remove when you're least expecting it so it's a much better idea to uh, put those into bags and secure them more around the waist of the boat near the shrouds uh, than have them on the foredeck. So sometimes when one comes down and you're engaged in some kind of activity where it gets left it's all too easy to leave it up there for a couple of extra hours but if you then end up going into heavy seas lo and behold you get yourself a massive problem. So I've just untied the sail Oh, that's good. The sheets are already off. Excellent. Well, whoever did this has really done a wonderful job. What an excellent crew there is on this boat. All right. Now we're opening this forward hatch. Now this forward hatch is about, uh, I can measure it out my feet. It's one, two, it's three foot by three foot. So as I'm standing here on the deck, I'm very aware of the fact that I do not want to stagger into this thing. Now what's down there? Perfect. Everything's clear and tidy. I did a, a, a video on YouTube called Origami Boat where I um, put all this stuff back into this uh, forepeak very neatly. My goodness me, what a transformation it's been. Now there's only one mistake I've made, which is that the boom cover has been down, hanging up in there, drying, and it's, uh, it's fallen off where it was hung up. So it's on the floor, dry, and now I'm putting a wet sail down on top of it. So, <laughs> there we go. Nearly, nearly getting there, nearly close to perfection, but not, not quite yet. One day, maybe. Okay, we've got about half a sail. I'm just coiling it down through this giant hatch and trying not to drag it down the deck too much. All right, we just got to the clue of the sail. Good. All right, and then we have to slowly do the end of it because they do tend to flick the, the last very tightly rolled bit. The tack of the sail does tend to flick. There we go, he's inside. Good. That's another good job done. Now, as I've been doing this, I'm keeping my eyes open, looking around. I've been watching the situation with the tide and everything for a good hour so I'm pretty happy with where I'm at and I can actually see now the a big light with the 12 second uh, period I can see it now it's on the beam so we've we've cut into the channel so I'm going to go back to the chart plotter and the uh, greater source of information just walking back down the boat here and we'll go and double check because we don't want to ever be in a situation when we're doing one job and we get distracted and then lose situational awareness. That's a very common thing for people who are inexperienced in any kind of uh, endeavor. You get caught up in a detail and you lose concept of what's going on around you. Yeah, this is looking good. Okay, so we've still got, we're still a good mile off the, uh, off the first uh, headland there. Was that Duncansby Head? Yeah, Duncansby. And then the next, next lighthouse that we're looking at is this guy here. Sandy Geo Island of Stroma. Stroma, is that correct? Yeah, Stroma. Oh my goodness, it's called Swilliki Point, is that correct? 
S-W-I-L-K-I-E. Swilkey. 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 I think Swilkey. Oh, I told you I'm going to be uh, messing things up with the pronunciation. Swilkey Point. I'm going to go with Swilkey Point. Okay. And, uh, oh, there's a little lake called the Gloop. That's a good. And Nethertown. Ooh. And it says there's a cave here as well. Charts are so interesting. You start just looking around at what's on the... The Beach of Langerton. The Beach of Langerton. The Sheep Scaries. Oh, man. Anyway, what we're looking at. We're looking here for the light characteristics at Sulky Point. Sulky Point is flashing to 20S, 20M, AIS. So a white flashing light with a period of 20 seconds and a range of 20 miles. So it's a group flash two and then 20 seconds. And you can see it at 20 miles. And then it says it's also got an AIS beacon on it. There we go. I might have just picked it up there. So, again, I'm not going to count out these ones that have got these very long periods. One, two. Okay, I just saw two flashes. So if it's the one that we're looking for, we might have missed the first flash. And then there should be a long gap here. Let me see what we've got. Okay, one. Two. <laughs> Two. Group flash. Is it a group? Oh, it's a group flash two. Oh, I was thinking it was three for some reason. You probably realized that, didn't you? So a group flash two and then 20 seconds. So I've got him and it's uh, about 45 degrees on the port bow. And I can tell from looking at the chart that it is how far away. So this is, I guess, you know, I don't apologize for taking you slowly through how I do the navigation. And this is how you do it. Are you constantly looking at things? So we're four miles away. Now we should have another lighthouse, which is away on my port, on our starboard bow rather, uh, which is on the island of Swona. Swona. I feel like there's a song in that. North Clet on the Isle of Swona. Now that one, or oh, maybe no, hang on, that's the wrong end. We've got a better one here. This one is called. I love this name. It's called the Taff. And what's this called here? And this is called the Tales, Tales of the Tarf. Wow, okay. <laughs> so this lighthouse is called the Tarf, like the Tarf. And the rocks just down from the lighthouse are called the Tales, Tales of the Tarf. My goodness me. People are very uh, uh, creative when it comes to naming these things. So it's uh, flashing eight seconds nine miles so white flashing light with a period of eight seconds and a range of nine miles so i should be able to see that guy over underneath the boom over there one how many is it flashing every eight seconds where is he so got a few over here it's a bit harder one two three oh no, that's the group flash two that's not my one i see a i see a light but i see a light that's got a group flash two might be on beyond it what's this guy over here now we're looking at the south walls flashing white with a 20 second ah, see this is what you get into where they're all overlapping each other you don't know the area Tornas. so these places are on the south of the orkneys when oh, i pressed the wrong thing we've got a uh, sounding instead of uh, information about a lighthouse come buddy there you go Flashing, no, I thought I saw something of the group flash too.
Hmm. Whenever it is, it should be like directly ahead of us. Flash, flash. Oh, here we go. Maybe this guy. Uh, we've got another light here. What have we got? Yes, there he goes. Okay, so we've now got a flashing light with a period of eight seconds, the TARF. So the TARF, yeah, has eight seconds. So it's about 10 degrees on the starboard bow. Luckily, I've got a Yankee cut jib up here, which means I can actually see what's going on. A Yankee cut headsail is one that's got its clue really high up in the air. And you often find them on ocean going boats. It allows the water to cross the foredeck really nicely. And it gives a good amount of visibility uh, for exactly this kind of situation. Because if that was a normal jib, I would not have seen that. The, the little island there of Swona and the lighthouse called the Taff with its uh, flashing signal every eight seconds, that would have been behind the jib. That would have been out of sight. So we've got, uh, we've got a good little um, set of three lighthouses here now. One 10 degrees to starboard, one 45 degrees to port, and the other one rapidly going behind us at Duncansby Head is probably 30 degrees uh, behind the beam now on the port, uh, on the port side. So uh, Duncansby Head and uh, the Taff are almost directly opposite each other. So if we're doing a fix for navigation, this would actually be a rubbish situation because these two things line up. But now what I'm realizing is that there's a, a moment coming up here. I think I can also change the autopilot to come 10 degrees to port. So this is a dogleg channel where we, we turn from um, 320 to 280, did we say? We're not quite at that point yet, but uh, the tidal race itself is starting to ease. And that means that whatever uh, rudder we've been using, whatever course we've been using to, to uh, work out the difference between our heading and course over the ground. It's starting to change. I'm now doing six knots. And uh, let's have a see what I'm doing through the water. I'm doing 73 meters beneath me. Yeah, I'm doing 7.4 through the water and about six uh, over the, over the uh, land. So um, yeah, we're, uh, yeah, we're gonna be get a transit line coming in here now. So transit line can be very useful. We've got the TARF. Uh, which is the one lighthouse that's to the north of us now, 10 degrees on the starboard bow. And we've got the light at Duncansby Head, which is rapidly falling behind the beam on the uh, port side. So I can get my little um, uh, measuring thing here on uh, Navionics and draw a line between the TARF and Duncansby Head. And if you've got Navionics on your phone, like you can play along, right? So <laughs> there should be a moment here now where if I get it just right, I can uh, do like a, a very quick fix with lighthouses where I should have two lighthouses in uh, absolute opposition to each other, which will be the Taff and Duncansby Head. And then uh, away on my port bow, uh, and that line will kind of cross the boat, and then away on my port bow uh, will be the light at the top of uh, the Isle of Swona uh, called Swil Swilkey Head, Swilkey Point, sorry, I should say. So, um, I can set up in my head a little uh, thing. I'll take a picture on my phone, and then maybe put it on the uh, on the blog of where I'm at now. Now we're, we're getting better at doing the blog. It's been something that I've been very poor at in the past, but uh, that's over on Patreon, and you can read those without having to uh, pay anything. Normally, people come and they'll pay five dollars a month to get access to. 
uh, well, to support the podcast, really, to support the YouTube channel, and they get access to some exclusive content. But the blog goes on there just free of charge. You can read that anyway. So I'll take these pictures now of what I'm doing and where I'm at and uh, what I'm thinking of. Here we go. Boink. That is 12.47. There you go. If you're listening to the uh, podcast, then you can uh, line it up with the picture that you see from my phone here. So I can look out now, and I know that directly on the bow of the boat is the uh, the Swilky uh, head, and Swilky Point, rather. And then I've got these two things that I'm crossing like a finish line between the Toth and Duncansby head. So whether I was um, doing that on a paper chart or an electronic chart, that's a fantastic way of backing up my... Uh, eyeball navigation yeah I've got all kind of flashing lights all around me yeah I'm keeping track of where I'm at but it's good to know okay I am bunk here and like be able to say firmly it's a bit like doing a sextant site and be able to say at this point on this day at this time I am exactly at this uh, line of latitude using the sun's height you know you might not be able to work out longitude very exactly but you can work out your latitude very very exactly and uh, at least you go this is a known point I could be anywhere on this line but I know I'm on this line somewhere so I know now I am on this line between these two lighthouses and the other thing that's changed here now is that there's not as much kind of weird uh, counterintuitive uh, motion coming from the boat it's uh, it's settled right down and it's given me a feeling that I am uh, moved into this channel now at a point where there's not so much uh, flow, there's not so much current, not so much tidal stream, should I say rather, not current but tidal stream, and that makes me feel like there's not going to be that much of the overfalls here, which are a, a, a theme of any kind of uh, area which is shallow and has got a lot of water moving over it at a high rate. So we haven't got much too further to go here, and uh, I'm wondering if I can nip down and get a cup of coffee. What do you think the chances are? This is one thing that freaks people out with solo sailing. It's like, you know, when do you and how do you get off the deck? So maybe we'll go and do that now. So how can we make that safe has got to be the first thing. So firstly, we can't go down for too long. Now, if you're in open ocean, you can't down for more than 20 or 30 minutes unless, you know, there's certain situations which make that that you can if you're away from shipping lanes, if you look all around you and, you know, with radar and with uh, all, all possible aids to navigation, there's not much around you. If you're going slow, uh, you know, you can go down for longer than that. But other than that, you've got to be up every 20 or 30 minutes and checking on what's around you because that's the mathematical amount of time you need to get, you know, to within close quarters of a vessel that just came over the horizon when you went down below. So 20 minutes is our upper limit, but we are in a narrow channel doing a difficult traverse in the middle of the night. Uh, should I go down at all? Well, I should go down anyway because I've been on deck for an hour, so I should go down. I'm not going to do the log book because it pins me in one place for too long. I still do do a log when I'm on my own, but I do want to go down and just check the compartments of the boat, make sure everything's okay. Might pull that... Um, uh, pull that uh, boom cover out from underneath that wet sail so it doesn't just become the thing that's going to absorb it. I would say also I can take my phone with me here, which has got the Navionics chart on it. So that's something else I can do that will keep me uh, aware of what's going on around me. I can also divide up what I'm going to do by going down, putting the kettle on, and then going back later and getting the coffee. And I think uh, by the time we've got this coffee, we should be uh, past John O'Groats, and I've done my part to uh, uh, celebrate uh, my friend Karen. I'm, it's a bit late this. Karen actually did that uh, ride on her bike like <laughs> quite a couple of years ago. But um, 
I thought it was so amazing at the time, and uh, uh, you know, I thought, oh, I'll go and do something like that. But uh, well, I did it in a the boat. There you go. All right, so we take one look around. We're going to go inside. We take a good look around here. There's lights all down one side, but we know, boom, we're on that line uh, between the Taff and Duncansby Head. And I've got Swilkey light is about 30 degrees on my port bow here. So as I go down the companionway, put the phone in my pocket so I don't, uh, don't drop it. Now what I think I'm going to do also is I'm going to put the engine on for 20 minutes just to make sure the batteries are topped up. So we go aft first and check the compartments. I'm here down now underneath where I was sitting on the, in the cockpit. Looking into the lazarette, all dry, nothing encumbering the steering gear. You can hear the pump running away in there. And these uh, doors through to the lazarette are kept closed at sea, but I just dogged them with one latch so that they are secure, but not uh, difficult to open from the other side. I'm just uh, trimming up a few of the bunks here, because if we are going to be going upwind the next couple of days, we don't want stuff jumping out of here. Okay, and let's get the uh, engine going. Want to make sure we don't have any issues with uh, Battery power, that's just the main master switch going on. Engine on, RPM showing, alternator showing and oil pressure, good, good. All right, and we'll go forward, main salon looks good. No issues in here. And we get into the galley. Now I got the uh, water in the kettle earlier on, so I can uh, just turn that on now. Good, that's on its way. And I can have a look in the Four peak. Oh yes, right. Well, we've got in here the uh, situation with this code zero. Let's just get this boom cover out from underneath it. There we go. Just try and give that the respect it's due. That boom cover. They're so expensive. You've got a forty-foot boom. You know, getting some umbrella enough to cover a forty-foot boom is pretty expensive. And we'll just get this code zero. There we go. Down coiled up on the floor so it can't move around good okay and then we have a look right at the bow everything looks good up there yep everything's secure no sounds of water in the bilge here good all right so we've been down a couple of minutes and there should be a part of you which is thinking but what's going on on deck but what's going on on deck because that's how this should work it is okay to come off the deck once in a while but you do have to, let's just check the heads. Yeah, I'm mostly listening for water in the bilge, listening to the masts they go past. There should be a part of you which is constantly thinking, now what's going on up there, right? You don't want to lose situational awareness. Let's get the cup out and we'll get some coffee. Get some coffee in the pot. There should be a little voice that's screaming, hey, we're in a channel and the channel is pretty narrow and uh, there's weird things going on with the course over the ground, the speed over the ground, but let's put the sugar in as well. Okay. Because what we do know is that we've been watching everything for quite a long time, and we know that we're in a pretty stable situation. There we go. We've got coffee, we've got sugar. I think we're doing okay there. Kettle is on. So now we go back up on deck. We check everything, make sure we've got what we 
came down to do, which is start the engine, do a quick check, put the kettle on, and then coming up onto deck here now, I know I should be able to look directly across and I've got the tarf on one side. I look back the other way. Oh, interesting, a bit of an angle change. We've got the Duncansby light there. And then ahead, we've got Swilkey. Ah, now interesting. So Swilkey light has changed its angle. It was about 30 degrees when we went down below, and now it's about 40 degrees. So just coming out the companionway here, I think we check the chart plotter, and I'll check on my phone here as well as I'm walking down the, the cockpit. Yes, okay. So now we are doing like seven knots. So when we went down, we were only doing five knots. Now we're doing seven knots and looking speed through the water is seven knots as well. So we've hit this just right. We're at the narrowest point of the journey and we are uh, doing seven knots exactly at the same speed through the water and course over the ground. So we've hit this at slack water, which is perfect because the area with the rough water and it says tide rips on my chart, uh, it's just ahead of us and we have successfully managed to uh, get through here without um, being in here when it's flowing one way or the other way. Now, don't think for a second that I um, <laughs> planned this from way off. I got to the edge of it and I started to realize, oh, this might just line up with the timings here. And then the tide turns on the other side at two o'clock and I will go in was the only thing that I decided. I just, it, you know, I'd go in if it was anything other than directly against me or directly with me. As I've said, it's not good to be uh, driving around with the tide fully with you or fully against you, uh, particularly when you've got an autopilot. Um, but I'm making a step-by-step. Step. It's about being an opportunist. Step-by-step, step, I'm looking at it and seeing where's the opportunity. Is this good? Is this bad? I'm just going to alter the um, autopilot here a little bit because it is having an effect on our apparent wind angle now because we're going at a completely different speed than we were before. All right, good. We're looking good here. So we're back on deck. Now, looking ahead of me, I do see that it's kind of darker ahead. I have got the foredeck light on. I often do when I'm doing these kind of things. It's very jolly having the foredeck light on. It's good for your mental health when you're at sea. You don't want to be just in the dark all the time. As I repeatedly say, all sorts of vessels at sea have their working lights on. You, you have to display navigation lights, but you have to display navigation lights. It doesn't then say you can't display anything else. You can have your foredeck light on. You can have anything you want on, <laughs> I think. And uh, look, here's the deal. I can see what's going on the foredeck. I can see I've got my head torch on. I can also see all the lights around me. Unless I'm trying to dodge like a submerged, you know, like log in the water, uh, was the only thing I possibly I might be able to see with a bit more night vision. I can see everything I need around me here for navigation and for my mental health. It's much better having the lights on. We are animals that are designed to be in daylight. And whilst I sail 50% of my time, remember I don't do like only daytime sailing. Whenever I go sailing, it's always voyaging and things. So it's 50% of night, 50% of the day. Having the foredeck light on is very good for the spirit. It just feels good, feels positive to have it on. And um, it also, it much more clearly identifies this boat as a sailing boat. Remember, some people are not looking 120 foot up in the air in a narrow channel to identify that you have your tricolor on as well. So I've got my running lights on at my bow and stern, I've got my tricolor on, and I've got my foredeck light on as well, which makes it a lot more jolly. But okay, now, are you starting to feel the, the pull of the kettle? Had you forgotten about the kettle? See, situational awareness. This is what we're here, this is what we're learning. We've got to be down making the coffee and worried about the channel. We've got to be up looking at the channel and worried about the coffee. Now, the thing with coffee is don't let the kettle boil. Yeah, there's no point. 
You don't need it to. Okay, perfect. It's just getting hot now. Okay, good. Turn off the gas. And then let's get this guy out of here. Get it in my cup. Okay, good. All right, that's much better. Got something nice and hot to drink. Good. Get the kettle back on its uh, mounts and get the clips back on it. Yeah, nice. All right. Now, the thing with this is that you don't want to have the uh, drink that you take on deck boiling hot because you can't drink it instantly. Everyone's got these insulated mugs now for uh, drinking stuff on the deck of a boat at night, but it's that damn hot you can't drink it for 20 minutes. So I have here a little, ta-da, polystyrene, not polystyrene, <laughs> porcelain, polystyrene, what are we talking about? Polyester, no, not polyester, poly the parrot. What's it called? Bloody porcelain, that's what it's called. I have a proper porcelain mug to drink out of and then I can enjoy that. And the difference is when it comes out of the insulated mug into the porcelain mug, then it cools down nicely and I can drink it rather rapidly, which is what I like when I get up on deck. Uh-huh, okay, so we got a cup of coffee. Let's check out the lights, we're back on deck. Yeah, we're still where we're, oh, that's got like double flashing lights. What's that then? What's that? Oh, that's maybe the Swilky light has got double flashing lights, interesting. All right, so now we've got our cup of coffee and I am, yes, perfect. I am directly north of John O'Groats, directly north of it and distance is three, 3.2 miles directly north of John O'Groats. So we are into, very much into the Pentland Firth channel here. We're directly north of John O'Groats, which is exactly where I wanted to be for the end of this podcast i'd like to salute again my friend karen who rode up here on her bike well done on your accomplishment for riding the length of the uk for everybody else that's listening who's not been riding from land's end to john o'groats um that is kind of the process i've been through there the process i'm talking through is what i go through a lot of uh going into channels going into narrow areas looking at lights looking at shallow points thinking about the effect of the uh apparent wind angle changes thinking about tidal rips uh, ferreting out and working out where the lights are, going below, doing jobs, coming back on deck, staying alert, staying awake, and uh, doing a few jobs at the right moment, but keeping situational awareness. These are some of the skills that you need to uh, be a successful offshore sailor, although this is all uh, inshore navigation. I'm just going to alter the autopilot here a little bit because we are starting to move now at a much more rapid rate, and that means we're gonna have a better angle to the wind very soon, because as I say, we're almost by the lee for that first part. We're now wheeling over to 280, which is where we want it to be. And as we do that and the wind speed increases, I'd like to say to you, wherever you are tonight or this morning or this afternoon or whatever it is for you and whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and sound. And I look forward to sailing with you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.